1 through 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you behaved and believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to be to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, we preach, so we preach, and so you believed." If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he, did not, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. But if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ said is coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. 
speaking of God himself. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. I'm going to invite you to join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 14, to give us a running start. No. That's what I chose. Okay, actually, let's start in uh, verse 1938. I don't know where I was thinking. 1938, to give us a running start. What we're going to be dealing with is the Apostle John's presentation of the, the reality of the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week in chapter 19, we focused on what John focused on, which is the crucifixion, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. He paid sin's penalty for us. The oldest book in your Bible, not the oldest events, but the oldest book, the first book to be written that is in your Bible is the book of Job. It was written before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Job was written, and Job was one or two generations pre-Abraham. And yet, what does Job say? What Handel borrowed from him. I know that my Redeemer lives and shall stand on the earth. And though after my flesh Worms destroy this body. Still, from within my flesh, I will see God. I have been redeemed. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rot. And I'm going to be yanked back out of that grave. And dwell in the presence of God with an eternal welcome. He is my Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 God says to the serpent, I'm going to make a seed from the woman and he is going to bruise your head. That's a killing blow while you bruise his heel. When Jesus, our Savior, went to the cross, his heel was bruised, which can be a debilitating blow. It can be very, very painful, but it's not typically a death blow, but it was a death blow to Lucifer because it broke entirely. It destroyed what he thought he had created in an unsolvable problem in the garden, and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit solved the unsolvable problem. Our Redeemer paid sin's penalty for us, and that is the event that took place when God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son become flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, went to the cross. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He paid sin's penalty for us, completely freeing his Holy Father to forgive us. The sin debt has been paid. I don't know about you folks, but I love Southern gospel music. And I just saw a wonderful, and I've just seen it recently, And it was a fellow sitting at the piano. He's blind. He's sitting there with the dark glasses on. And he sang this song called Mercy Walked In. 
And he says, I was in the courtroom. This is the song. I was in the courtroom. And the judge said, all the evidence says you're guilty. And he says, yes, I'm guilty. And the penalty must be paid. And then mercy walked in to the courtroom and said, I paid the debt. And I welcomed that mercy. Mercy walked in. Well, that is the bare bones testimony of everyone who is welcomed in God's kingdom. Mercy, mercy, mercy. God is rich in mercy. In the Sunday school class today, we were looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Our God is rich in mercy. Exactly the thing we need the most of. Then Jesus was placed in a tomb. He's placed in a tomb. They had to get him and they had to get the two men who were crucified with him. They had to get them off of the crosses and into the tomb, into their places of burial before the sun went down. Because the high Passover is about to come. By the way, in the Jewish book of Leviticus, in ancient Israel, when they executed someone, they would stone them to death, and then they would actually put the carcass up on a tree as an exhibit to the community. This is what happens when you murder someone, when you commit adultery, when you This is what happens, but they always got the body off of that tree and into the ground before the sun went down. And so they had to do that with Jesus. They had to do that with the two men crucified with him. Of course, Jesus was already dead. When they came to him, he had already dismissed his spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But they had to break the legs of the two men crucified with him because they were still alive. And when you break their legs, then they can't push themselves up to breathe, and they suffocate to death very quickly. Within a matter of minutes, they're dead. Then they put Jesus, went into the tomb, was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Jewish fellow, friends with all the upper crust there in the, in the Jerusalem community. He had been a secret follower of Jesus, and he is joined by Nicodemus, who has already been showed up twice in John's Gospel, also a secret believer and the member of the Sanhedrin. Jesus even calls him the rabbi of Israel, a Pharisee. And they together receive the body with Pilate's permission. They receive the body of Jesus and they place it in Joseph's tomb that he had just had, had carved out of a rock. You can get on an airplane today and fly to Jerusalem and you can walk up to that empty tomb. And it's an empty tomb. It's an empty tomb. Because Jesus, on the third day, he's placed in the tomb on Friday, day one. He's in the tomb on day two, the high Passover, Sabbath. And then day three, he comes out. Chapter 19, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leadership, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, that's in chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And as I said last week, that he spent a fortune 
hundred pounds, and then they would wrap the body with the linen and put in the layers of linen, they would put these spices. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And this was a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had had carved out of a rock for his own carcass to be put in eventually. So he gives his own tomb over to Jesus. So there, verse 42, So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. And that this is the preparation day. Preparation day meaning the day, uh, preparation for the, the high Passover Sabbath. Now on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, <coughs> Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. Now we know from the other gospel accounts there are actually two or three women to, together. But one of the things we find with John's gospel, when there are parallel passages, God, John gives us the bare bones. Uh, narrative. He doesn't name everybody who was there. He tells us what we need to know. So it's actually Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and another woman that all go. There's actually three women, but John only mentions one because he's doing the bare bones narrative. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not, we, we, why? Because it, she wasn't by herself. And we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes." So let's stop right here for a moment. Go back. Mary Magdalene goes to the upper room where the Last Supper had taken place. Peter and John, John never names himself in this gospel. He is also, he is always that disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's always the unnamed disciple or apostle. And so Peter and John are both there. Mary Magdalene tells them what has happened, and they both race to the empty tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter, came to the tomb, and he's just stooping down, looking in. He's looking in. 
Notice the words looked, saw, saw, saw. John's gospel, all the gospels really, but all. What did their eyes see? What their ear? What did their ears hear? What did their hands touch? It's the five senses. It's evidence, 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 evidence. All the gospels are emphatic on the evidence in a courtroom. When a witness takes the stand, they don't want his conclusions. They want to know what did you see, what did you hear, what did you smell, what did you taste, what did you touch? What did your five senses bring to your brain? And tell us, tell us. Evidence, 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 evidence. This is what they saw. And as I've repeatedly said through this entire enterprise, through John's Gospel, the God, Christianity stands alone. Of all the religions in the world, Christianity stands alone in saying, test me, test me, test me. Look at the evidence, look at the evidence, look at the evidence. All of the other religions in the world's world are offended if you question their narrative. If you want to test their narrative, Christianity says, test me. And as I said a few minutes ago, you can go to the airport, get on an airplane, fly to Jerusalem, and you can walk up to an empty tomb. It's still empty. It's still empty. Now notice what it says, this kind of mysterious thing in verse 8. Then the other disciple, meaning John, speaking of himself, who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. What did he believe? Because the very next verse says, as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. What's he? He's believing what Mary Magdalene said. Somebody stole the body. What's going on? Now, honestly, folks, this is hard to get our minds wrapped around. Because as you read through the gospel in earth, has Jesus not told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I will rise from the dead? He has said this to them numerous times. Matthew's gospel, the pinnacle, the climax of Matthew's gospel, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're the uh, Elijah. Some say you're the prophet of Deuteronomy. Some say this, that. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaking on behalf of all of them, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good one, Peter. You are Peter, Petras, fist-sized stone. And on this Petra, female, feminine version of the same word, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he tells them for the very first time, oh, by the way, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified. And then on the third day, I will rise from the dead. And Peter's in front of all the, no, 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 Lord, that's not the plan. Get behind me, Satan, for you do not savor the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. How do you forget something like that? All I can suggest, folks, is a divine deafness. They remembered it later. They remembered those instances which, when Jesus told them. But at this time, they're just operating in a beclouded mind. And so what is it that 
John is, I think the simple thing he's saying that he believed was, yeah, Mary, somebody stole the body. He saw it and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that said he was, must rise again from the dead. He's not thinking of a resurrection. He's thinking of Mary's testimony. Someone has stolen the body. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary, who's gone back to the tomb again, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. She's weeping. That's important. She, her eyes are filled with tears. And she stooped and she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw, there's our word again, and she saw two angels in white, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And she saw two angels. She saw that. Then they said to her, so it strikes her eardrums. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But remember, her eyes are filled with tears. She saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Her eyes are filled with tears. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, remember her eyes are filled with tears, said to him, sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. She turned, gave him her full attention, and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Stop. (laughs) She's already thrown herself down at his feet. She's got her arms wrapped around his knees. We know that not only from this passage, but from other gospel accounts. Stop clinging to me. (laughs) Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. I've got a task to do. For I've not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, my brethren, my brethren, all of those men who denied me or fled from me. Go to my brethren. I would dare say every one of those men believes at this point They've disqualified themselves. How can I be claimed to be an authentic follower of Jesus? When he got arrested, I fled. And the Peter who pulled out his sword and took off the ear of the high priest's servant, and then Jesus healed, put your sword away. And then Peter denied him three times. 
none of them gave their life. They all said, we will die rather than let this happen to you. And they all fled. They all betrayed him on one level or another. And what does Jesus call them? My brothers. I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. How emphatic is Jesus being? You're my brothers. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. One of Satan's principal methods of draining the energy out of our walk with God. And this is what he is, this is his number one tactic, is he wants to elevate the reality of sin. He doesn't have to make anything up about me. Satan stands, Revelation chapter 12, Satan stands before the throne of God day and night accusing the brethren. But he also stands on our shoulder speaking in our ear reminding us of all the reasons why we cannot possibly be useful to God. Why our welcome with God cannot be real. He is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us to God, but he also accuses us to us. And what does Jesus say? Tell my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, that I am ascending into the presence of my father and your father and to my God and your God. He is as emphatic here as he can possibly be about the steadfastness of their relationship with him and with the Father. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Saw, spoke. She heard it. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, this is still Sunday, before the sundown. By the way, remember the Jewish day is sundown to sundown. So this is late in the afternoon on Sunday. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. They're afraid that the same Jewish leadership that sent the temple police and arrested Jesus can now are going to seek them out and bring, and bring the law down on them. So they got the door locked. The doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood. He appeared in the midst and said to them, Shalom. The standard Jewish greeting, peace be with you. Shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Remember the nail prints in the wrist? Remember the Greek word for hand is from from the tip of the finger to the elbow? They drove the, the nails through the wrist, this hollow place in the wrist. He showed them that. He showed them pulled up his shirt, showed them where the spear had been driven through his side. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
This is not an imagination. They're not having hallucinations. They are seeing the Lord. Here are the nail prints. Here's where the spear was thrust through my side. So Jesus said to them, Peace to you, shalom, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He is instantly restoring them to their apostolic ministry. An apostle means a sent one, one who is sent. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, shalom, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. The Father sent me into the world, and I'm sending you into the world. As it states in Matthew 28, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. I also send you. You are still my apostles. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now that word breathed on them, it's an interesting word. It's the only occurrence of it in the entire New Testament. It's a Greek word, but it is also in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, about a hundred years before Jesus' birth, uh, Hebrew was falling into disuse. And even the Jews were speaking Aramaic, or Greek was the language of the Roman Mediterranean world. And in Alexandria, Egypt, they translated, and it's called the Septuagint. It's spelled Septuagint, but if you want to be truly scholarly, it's Septuagint. And it's supposedly was done, and it's doable, 70 scholars in 70 days translated the entire Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. Well, this word used here, he breathed on them, it only occurs once in the New Testament, but it is the word used in the book of of Ezekiel when in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, here's the scattered bones, this is spiritual representative representation of Israel in a day yet to come. They are, uh, spiritually, they are as dead as dead can be. They aren't even whole corpses. They're scattered bones across the landscape. And Ezekiel, speak to the Ruach. Speak, call on these bones to come together. And the bones come together. And then call for the flesh to come on the bone. The bones come together. And now, Ezekiel, speak to the ruach, which is the Hebrew word for spirit, wind, or breath. That's the Hebrew word. To come and fill them. Well, that's the word that is used there in the Septuagint for breathed on them. That they would be breathed, the breath would come upon them and come in them. And the carcasses stand up on, and it is a picture of that day to come when Israel will be restored as that useful body to God. And that's the word that is used here. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He is re stating to them their apostolic authority. Apostolic, Folks, that's a big task. That's a big authority. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Let me tell you something. 
It's not just them, not those 12, it's us. Notice this, these are the words of Jesus, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Speaking to us, the church. I, Jesus, am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. May it be so. And I have, I have, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Who is the instrument of God on this planet right now? Well, in that day, it was initially the core discipleship group was the apostles. But this, go into all the world and preach the gospel. We are speaking to the human race about the one who has the authority, who has the keys of Hades and of death. He can release you from death and hell. That apostolic authority really goes to all disciples. Whenever you gospel anyone, whenever you explain the redemption story to anyone, they can be unchained. They can be set free. They can be raised from the dead. That whole picture there in Ezekiel 37 isn't about a future reality of literally being raised from the dead. It's talking about a spiritually dead Israel that is so dead, they're like bones scattered across the landscape. And as (laughs) impossible a reality as that is, what does God do with that impossible reality? He does the possible that only he can do. But who are the ones speaking out the word? You're in Ezekiel. When you communicate the gospel to someone, you are as much an Ezekiel as Ezekiel in that portraying that future event. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you can assure someone of their forgiveness against their... Because of their, the offenses against God that they had committed, they, they've been set aside. If you retain the sins of any, if they reject your message, they're still walking in their debilitation, in their guilt. They're choosing to... Embr- Don't blame yourself. And again, a passage I keep repeating, going back to, back to, back to, because it's so graphic, so... Shocking, Zechariah chapter 12, again, a future event. Zechariah chapter 12. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by the armies of ten nations. We know that from Revelation. The armies of ten nations, we know from Revelation 14, there are so many there that it's 92 miles in every direction around Jerusalem is filled with the armies of these nations. That's the same distance from here to, to Georgetown. That's a lot of people there for the single purpose of annihilating the Jews. And it says in Zechariah chapter 12 that the Lord himself will come out. Thus says the Lord, I will come out and they, the Jews in Jerusalem, will look on me whom they pierced. That can only be one person. Jesus of Nazareth, let his blood be on us and on our children. They will look on me whom they pierced 
and they will mourn. And I will pour out on them a spirit of grace and of supplication and they will separate themselves from one another and they will mourn. They will take responsibility for their sin. Chapter 13, verse 1, I will open for them a fountain of cleansing and one-third of them will repent. They all see the same thing and one-third of them repent. Get off the fence. <laughs> One third of them. It's not because of a lack of evidence. It's because of a hard, unrepentant stone, heart of stone. Heart of stone. But we speak the gospel. They spoke the gospel. We speak the gospel. And Jesus actually has placed into our hands that authority to set people free from Hades and from death. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger, put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Why is he responding? Frankly, folks, it's understandable. In the sense that Thomas and the, all the apostles were so traumatized by what happened to their, their Savior, by what happened to the man with whom they had walked for three plus years. Unless I can see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, as he had the first time, peace to you, shalom. Then he said to Thomas, reach out your finger, reach your finger here, and look at my hands. He invited him to put his finger in the nail print. Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Evidence, 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 evidence. Do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Yes, he is God the Son. How did John's Gospel begin? The very first verse, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word, the speaker already was the one who said in Genesis 1, the one 
described in Genesis 1, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, he's the speaker, he's God the Son, he is the speaker, God. In the beginning was the Word, the speaker, and the speaker was in a face-to-face relationship with the Father. And this is the Greek word order, and God was the Son. My Lord and my God. He is God, come in the flesh, undiminished deity. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What are we listening to? We're listening to the almost 2,000 years ago testimony of those who believed. What was their life experience? When they were challenged about the evidence, every single one of these men died. They were martyred. With the exception of John the Apostle, but they did dump him in boiling oil. (laughs) They tried. It simply didn't work. Thomas took the gospel all the way to India and founded what's called, even it's there to this day, the Martoma Church, the Witness of Thomas Church in India. When the Portuguese got there in the 1400s, oh, we're going to bring Christianity to these poor benighted Indians. Well, that's good. I don't... <laughs> One of the first people groups they met was the members of the Martoma Church, and they were shocked. They had no idea the gospel had already gotten there 1400 plus years before by this very man. Thomas, and he had been speared to death. He had been speared to death because of his loyalty to Jesus. He wouldn't back down. Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, who receive your testimony. Or receive the testimony of Peter, who got crucified upside down, of Andrew, who got crucified on an X-shaped cross. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion. I think that when John wrote the next two verses, he thought he was done. And then Jesus said, no, you've got an addendum, which we will look at next week, chapter 21. But notice the words of John. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. In John's gospel, you've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is obviously a sign. It is a proof of the reality of his message of who he is and what he would accomplish. Other than that, you've got seven miracles specified in John's Gospel. But Jesus had performed probably well over a thousand miracles. I mean, he is healing so many people, cleansing so many lepers. They're coming, he's up in Galilee and they're bringing people from Syria This isn't in Matthew's gospel. They're bringing people to him from Syria to heal. Jesus' reputation as a healer had gone out to all the surrounding countries. 
Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. If these seven aren't enough evidence, then 77 wouldn't be enough. This is enough, this is enough, this is enough, if you really care about what's true. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you believe what this book of the Gospel of John declares, you will receive the gift of God's Son, who is the Redeemer, and you will be. You're, the gift to you is your redemption, your cleansing, creating welcome for you in the presence of God. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And John has completed his gospel, and then Jesus sat down with him and said, John, we've got an addendum. <laughs> we've got an addendum. I want the people to really know my capacity, my eagerness in fully restoring those who have failed. And that's why the subject of John chapter 21, which we will be looking at next week, is the deliberate restoration, public restoration of Peter, the one who had publicly denied him three times, which is very, very important for us because number one thing Satan wants to do to us is disqualify us in our own minds. So we will put ourselves in the bleachers on the fence <laughs> instead of being active in the field as we should be. Any comments or questions before we close? Let's pray. Our Lord, we want to thank you that you not only paid sin's penalty, you did it willingly, eagerly. Your Father sent you, but you also, just like Isaac in Genesis 22, allowed himself to be bound and picked up by his father and laid on the wood to be sacrificed, you willingly gave yourself over to the will of your father and allowed yourself to be bound, so to speak, and placed on that wooden altar that we call the cross, except you were not bound, you were nailed. You were nailed to that cross. We thank you that your Father is the eager lover of our souls. You are the eager Son, eager to redeem us at immeasurable cost to yourself to redeem us and show us your authentic love, mercy, kindness, grace. The authentic mercy, love, kindness, grace of your Father the authentic love, mercy, kindness, grace of God the Holy Spirit who is the one that animates this whole process 
especially in ushering us into your presence in a wel- with a welcome. We ask that you would enable us to not be fence-sitters this week, but to use, be useful to you in speaking gospel truth to others. And for all those people for whom we prayed earlier, to be set free from addictions, from disease, from debilitating emotional events in their past. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen those people and set them free. Those who know you, that are not experiencing all your grace as they could, and those who do not yet know you, that you would speak the words of power that will bring them out of the grip of the enemy and into your own embrace. We commit all of these people to you and ourselves to be useful instruments of yours in the week to come. In your name, Jesus, amen.